Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Uh, Right now, we are open for in-store shopping from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. We are increasing our store capacity, very exciting news, from 8 people to 12 people. Wow. Uh, yeah, I know. It's, uh, things are changing. Things are looking up. Spring has sprung. We've got the vaccine. Hopefully, we will get back to our uh, our usual at some point in the near future. But um, for now, we're just excited to be able to welcome a few more people into the store. Uh, I don't know if you guys have come out and visited the store. But we do have a long line outside the store almost every day now, which is cool, um, you know. People say LA people in LA don't read, but they really do. And they really will stand in line for books. Oh my God. It's such a nineties experience. Like I'm waiting for tickets to a show. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think, you know, we are the hottest club in LA right now. (laughs) It's like Lollapalooza 1994 and I'm in line to get my tickets. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For those of you listening, I want to just introduce this other voice that you're hearing. My guest today is Beth Pickens. She is the author of Make Your Art No Matter What and a Skylight favorite. We love you, Beth. We see you in the store often. Um, and now we see you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me. Skylight is my neighborhood bookstore. I've spent a lot of time there. I've been to a lot of events there. I love, it's like a home, a hub. Um, and I've picked up a lot of books from the annex over the past year. <laughs> and so I'm so, and podcasts are like, besides books, podcasts are my favorite form. So this is really exciting for me. Yes, yes. Well, I'm so happy to have you. Um, so I want to give you a formal introduction so our audience knows a bit more about you and your book. Uh, and then we'll start off with a reading and then we're going to jump into conversation. All right. So make your art no matter what. Uh, this is a fantastic new guide. Um, if you are an artist, here's this. You need to make your art in order to be an artist. That's not an overstatement. It's a fact. If you stop doing your creative work, your quality of life is diminished. But what do you do when life gets in the way? In this down-to-earth handbook, experienced artist coach Beth Pickens offers practical advice for developing a lasting and meaningful artistic practice in the face of life's inevitable obstacles and distractions of which there have been so many this year. (laughs) Um, So this book is extremely timely. 
Uh, a bit about Beth. Beth Pickens is a Los Angeles-based consultant for artists and arts organizations. She's the author of Make Your Art No Matter What and Your Art Will Save Your Life, which has been a Skylight bestseller. It's a fantastic little pocket-sized book that you should take with you everywhere you go. Uh, her popular podcast, Mind Your Practice, is widely available, as is her subscription-based homework club. She teaches at California Institute of the Arts. Welcome, Beth. Happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. All right. So do you want to start us off with a little reading, give our listeners a taste? Yeah, I'm going to give you a taste of chapter three, which is on asking. Every chapter is just a different topic, and then I dive into that topic. So chapter three, asking. To the artists, all problems of art appear uniquely personal. Well, that's understandable enough, given that not many other activities routinely call one's basic self-worth into question. And that's a quote from David Bales and Ted Orland, Art and Fear. Ramzia, an Arab-American visual artist with an MFA from a prestigious art program, was in a fetal position on my office couch, gripping a pillow to her chest. She pleaded again, begging me not to make her do what I was asking. I took a breath and softened my face. I quietly encouraged her, hands resting on my lap, watching as she balled up into a small, anxious animal, her cell phone hidden under a thick pool of long black hair. I reminded Ramzia that the task would only take 15 seconds and would almost certainly have a positive outcome. Smiling, I insisted that I would give her all the time she needed. Ramzia made guttural moaning sounds, picking up her cell phone and then hiding it again. She insisted that this task would kill her. Really, it would. It was impossible. Couldn't she do it later? Maybe the next day? No, I told her gently and quietly. We would finish this important task during our session so we could move on to the next order of business. So what terrible ask, or what terrible act was I asking my long suffering client to perform? Ramzia and I had agreed that she would apply for an upcoming grant, unrestricted funding that she sorely needed and intensely wanted. She has a very impressive exhibition history, frequently sought after by thoughtful, experienced curators in Los Angeles and New York, Ramzia's work, works have created a large, passionate fan base, comprising many other acclaimed artists. I knew she was competitive for this grant. It would be precisely the money and confidence boost she needed to complete the large-scale work that was already underway. But the deadline loomed just a few weeks away, and we needed something crucial for the application, a letter of recommendation. Ramzia had sighed heavily when I brought up the letter earlier in the session, asking her to suggest some people who know her work well and might be willing to write it. At the top of her list was Stella, a successful curator who has an enviable career and a strong reputation as a forward-thinking champion of under-recognized artists. Stella knew Ramzia's work intimately and could speak to her exhibition history and the intricacies of her art with intellect and emotion. Stella was on medical leave. She would have a major surgery in the coming days, making this a difficult time for a professional request. But we had an ace in the hole. Stella happened to be Ramzia's best friend. I felt momentarily baffled by Ramzia's emotional resistance and physicalized reaction to asking her best friend for a letter of recommendation. We could simply write the first draft, making the request even easier on Stella. I am human, however, and watching Ramzia squirm in anguish for 15 minutes, I wondered, am I a monster? The artist in front of me was in real pain. I thought carefully about how much to push and when to back off. I wouldn't have been surprised if Ramzia had broken out in hives in that moment. So intense was her anxiety. 
My professional instinct was to let her feel the fear and express every reason out loud as to why she did not want to ask her best friend to compose and sign a letter of recommendation. She had many reasons, but I knew none of them was based in reality. It was just fear whispering to her that it was unacceptable to ask someone for something she needed. It would be bothering them, and this was something Ramzia worked hard to avoid. In session with clients, I have patience and will an equal match. I decided to lovingly wait until she sent the text to Stella. Finally, with only minutes left in our hour, Ramzia hit send while squeezing her eyes shut squealing. Within seconds, Stella responded, of course. Thank you. So I, I love that excerpt because I think it does get at um, some of the basic anxieties at the heart of art making, which is like, first of all, why should anyone care about the art that I'm making? Even the people who care about me as a human being, why would they care about the things that I produce? Um, and that really resonates with me. Um, so thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, I wanted to use uh, anecdotes throughout the book that are, you know, the all of the clients' names and identifying um, details have been switched up so people can't recognize, recognize themselves or anybody else in the book. But the, these are all true vignettes, and I had that experience. And actually, that was the first chapter of the book that I wrote. That was part of my book proposal. And, and it makes sense that the very first thing I wanted to write about was asking for things, how artists are terrified and refuse to ask for help. And why do you think that is? Like, as someone who's worked with many, many artists with many, <laughs> many anxieties. I think it's a confluence. It's a constellation of things for each person. Socialization definitely plays a part of it. Um, it's not only women or people who have been socialized as female for all or some of their life, but gender definitely plays a role. I've seen that just statistically with my clients so much over the past decade plus. Um, so it's socialization, it's, it's gender, it's race, it's class, it's religion and community, it's, it's interpersonal affect and, and how we're each wired, it's our family of origin, and I think it's the mythology of different art worlds that somehow you shouldn't or need to ask for anything, that your work should somehow propel you into a stratosphere of your desire just because it's like quote unquote good, and that's that's just a myth that has never existed for anybody ever, <laughs> anywhere. Um, so it's, it's a bunch of, it's a constellation of things that tell people, just whisper in their ear, you, you're not allowed to ask for that. You can't ask for that. You shouldn't need to ask for that. No one's gonna help you anyway. It's just a whole list of things that go on for an artist. And a big part of what I do with every single client is help them understand like, what do they actually want and need and who can help them? And then how can they be reciprocal and help other people? Cause that's how things actually happen. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to use the big C word, but uh, it feels like capitalism <laughs> is playing, playing a role here in the devaluing of artist community. Um, that, For sure. That, yeah, the capitalist that work, exceptionalism. Yeah, that you should be able to bootstrap yourself into art world right. success when, in fact, anyone who spends a lot of time in artistic fields knows that they are 1000% functioning on these vast mycological networks of connections between people that they are actually... I mean, they're of course implicated in capitalism, but we're trying for something better, right? Right. <laughs> well, and, and people just, all of my clients, they, they get more if they ask for more of everything, of every single thing. And they also learn more about themselves and learn things like, 
resilience and recovery. Like when you ask for something and you're disappointed or you don't get it, or the person can't help you, or you get the thing or the thing happens and you're still afraid. It, it's sort of like we have to go through these processes to then have illuminated for us that what happens when our fears don't materialize, but then maybe new ones emerge. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's always new ones. <laughs> There's always new ones. I have a whole chapter on fear too. Fear is just, it's another one of the chapters because everyone just has fear. Can we talk a little bit about the fear, the fear chapter? I think, I think it's especially relevant um, this year because we've been dealing with not only careerist fears, but just personal fears, fears of uh, disease and death and loss of loved ones. Um, have you found like, when you wrote this book in 2019 and you wrote the fear chapter, have you found that your um, your feelings about the chapter or the applications of the chapter have changed um, over the course of the year of this pandemic? Yeah, I, th- I think <clears throat> so fear is this <clears throat> ever present and in the chapter I write about evolutionary quality and some fear is super good, super helpful. It's good to be afraid of falling off a cliff. It's good to be afraid of like loud gunshots or animals sneaking up on you. These, these are healthy feel- fears that help our, our, our brains are telling us to stay alive, stay safe. And then there's all the other fear that is pretty common, but maybe we feel alone with it. Um, fear of what other people think of us, fear of taking up space, fear of saying the wrong thing, fear of being unloved. Um, and and all and fear interrupts artists' ability to make work just with themselves, let alone putting it out into the world. And then it can interrupt the process of letting their world get bigger and let their letting their work find its audience and, and helping and supporting it. And then starting about a year ago, <laughs> the, when the pandemic hit, fear became the central order of the day, fear and anxiety became the primary experiences of the artists that I talk with in session all day, every day. And what, it was just suddenly all these new fears cropping up that didn't used to be there. I'm afraid to go to the grocery store. I'm afraid I will, I will inadvertently give somebody the virus and then they'll die. I'm afraid I will die. I'm afraid I'll lose my job. I'm afraid unemployment will run out. It, fear became, every moment of the day for so many people. And that is unsustainable on our nervous systems. We cannot actually tolerate being that afraid for that long because it's exhausting. And so the fear gets sublimated into other things. And also what we do with fear is very different person to person. Um, and and we, I, I think that I kept saying all for the past year that the pandemic is really about judging and being judged, like <laughs> judging what everyone else is doing or not doing, and then feeling or worrying that you're being judged in, in, in concert. And because that's pretty much true. I think that's been a lot of people's experiences. And those are, there's so many systemic reasons as to why. Um, but the nature of fear for my clients it's like also having so few choices, so many people's options and choices in their daily lives shrunk so expansively, expanded loss of choice, if that makes sense, that their fear became a thing they couldn't escape. There was sort of no distraction for it. You could only numb out from it for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also your poor tired little body just gives out at some point. And you're like, why am I sleeping all the time? Or why have I been, why is my thumb numb from looking at Instagram for seven hours? It's like, because our little systems just need a break from all the fear, the relentless fear. Because I mean, I w- this is not a pandemic podcast, nor is my book a pandemic book, but it's just, 
how many years is it going to take for us in our lifetime to understand the year that we've been through and are still living through? I remember seeing a tweet sometime early or like midway through the pandemic thus far. And it said like, future scholars will say they specialize in 2020 and people will say, oh, what quarter? Because every month was something so much. And then the pandemic sometimes was the backdrop to the other horrors happening. Murder and death. And I mean, in California, fires all up and down the West Coast. That disaster of, a, of an election, like, we, of course, we've just been boiling in fear for over a year. No wonder we all feel crazy. I, I do too. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious to see how, I'm, I'm curious and I, I guess uh, a bit nervous to see how, from fear, uh, how this year of fear is going to affect the output of artists. You know, I think mm -hmm. there's been a lot of talk in LA about well, how's this going to impact the film industry and the TV industry? And we're going to have this drought of content. Um, and that's that's kind of a concern on more of just a, again, capitalist level of generating content to sell. But in terms of the quality and the, and the kind of things that people are contemplating um, in the wake of the pandemic, like I, I'm so curious to see how this is going to shift our kind of collective unconscious um, as, as artists and art makers. Um, do you have any inkling of like how artists are coping with this year? I mean, you must have some. <laughs> um, all across the spectrum, all across the board, but largely, I mean, they've really been struggling. You know, like my particular subset of the population that I work with is artists across all disciplines, um, largely women, queer people, people of color uh, from their 20s to 50s and living, I mean, most of them are in the US and cities, but not, not everybody. And something happened, there, there was an interesting parallel. My first book was written in response to the 2016 presidential election. And that after Trump took office, what I heard from all my artist clients that prompted that first book was, I need to quit making art and do something else because my art isn't enough. And my central thesis of my consulting practice and that book was, your art is actually what's gonna help you stay alive to do all the things that you think are so important that right in this moment, your brain is telling you are more important than your book. And then in the second book that carries over that for artists, your practice is what helps you, what makes an artist distinct from me and the rest of the population is an artist needs their creative practice in order to process being alive and to understand and communicate. And then we, the larger world and culture, we need all of that work, all the different kinds of work that is made so that we can process and understand being alive and what we're going through. And so very early in the pandemic, I realized what I was doing with clients, the thing that needed to shift was I needed to help each of them individually find a way back to their practice, no matter what specific um, conditions the pandemic was producing in their life, whether it was suddenly kids are at home instead of at school or they lost their job or they're working even more or they're just severely depressed or they're taking care of ailing people that we had to find gentle, meaningful, sustainable ways back to their practice. Because for one thing, an artist making their work during pandemic is gonna have a better time of living through the pandemic than somebody who abandons their practice or just can't find their way back to it. So for one thing, for all artists, their practice has been a major source of taking care of themselves and, and being well and processing experiences as close to real time as possible. 
And I have a vested interest in that because I know that we, the rest of the larger cultures and world, need all of the work that artists are going to put out over the next six to 18 months to help us process some of what we've been through. Whether or not somebody's work is in response to or about the pandemic, that doesn't matter. One of art's biggest impacts, it's not as most important to everybody, but to me it certainly is, is art helps us feel our feelings and make sense of things that are nonsensical or impossible to understand. It helps us find ways through things that might be blocked inside of us. And any kind of work can do that, but I think people would really resonate with that, certainly with films and with music, things that are very directly emotional, but all work has the capacity to do that. So I realized like, okay, all these artists need to make their work. And then they, the work that they make when it goes out into the world, that's gonna help the rest of us figure out what the, what did we just go through? And what do we think of it now? How do we make sense of any of it? And if there is not art, we are gonna be decades delayed in making sense of what we've been through. So I sort of saw my role in this ecology, like I just help this subset of artists that I reach keep making their work, keep making it, keep making it, keep making it so it can go out and then have its effect on culture. Yeah, and I'm, I think that's so necessary also because we've been through a year of everybody has been trying to listen to experts or blatantly ignoring experts. And experts can tell you how to cope with things in a logistical sense, but they can't tell you how to feel. <laughs> um, and they can't tell, I mean, not that artists tell you how to feel, but they give you some examples of ways of feeling and ways of processing. Um, and that's just as important for, for getting through something traumatic. It's, it's not just following instructions that is going to keep mm -hmm. you, keep you alive and keep you connected to your fellow human beings. It's, it's also yeah. sharing in these feelings and sharing in these experiences. So we really, really need this. And I think as a, as a country, you know, we're, we're so resistant to processing our grief. Um, you know, we've lost over 500,000 people and, you know, we, we lit some candles. <laughs> so, right. This was a physicalized this was like a physicalized, crystallized example of not being able to process grief. People not being able to go. My, my wife, for instance, lost her grandmother and her grandmother's twin sister to COVID, one at the beginning and one more recently. And just the example of not being able to go to mourn with people, it stops the grieving process. And there's a whole chapter in my book about grief because grief is massive in artists' life because grief is one of the big things that are making work about or in response to or trying to process through. And so if we as a world for sure have this enormous grief response in response to a collective trauma and then all the other traumas that are happening in people's lives, and then the micro traumas in one's own personal life, that is like stuck, I think, stuck inside most people. And one of the things that art does better than maybe anything else, maybe talk therapy, maybe different healing forms, but art certainly I think does it the best, at least in my life, is it helps move grief. It helps stir something that is stuck deep inside of us and have it start to move. And I, I think that the, the, the service that art is going to provide in the coming year and two and five and 10 years in moving grief through us as a result of the past year plus, that is invaluable. The, the value of that, if we could put capitalist terms on that, artists would be making a living, all of them, just for making work to help people move through their grief. I love that vision. 
And I think that's such a beautiful way to talk about art moving grief. Um, so I wanna shift gears a little bit out of pandemic <laughs> discussion, uh, which is what we kind of start every one of these interviews with now. Um, but I wanted to kind of get a little practical here and talk about um, some of the strategies and advice that you've come up with for artists who are struggling for whatever reason with uh, committing to their practice. Um, what are some kind of like, first off, ways of just breaking through the kind of torpor and like getting them back into what, what they love? Mm -hmm. when, I, when I encounter an artist who has had some distance from a practice, a particular project or just any creative practice, I think of it as sort of, we just tiptoe gently back in. This doesn't have to be a 180. I think um, big dramatic gestures are amazing. I don't think they often last very long or something catches up with us. So I will have my clients sort of tiptoe back into a practice. And I would suggest somebody start with something that um, feels low stakes. So if it's like, I've been avoiding my novel or I've been avoiding this album I'm trying to finish, I would say, okay, we'll get to that. But maybe let's start with something that feels low stakes, low pressure, um, like a creative practice that maybe isn't even in your discipline, but is something that feels a little bit more playful or light that doesn't have the, the heaviness, the pressure to perform, to perform, perform. So I would say tiptoeing in and also starting with really small increments of time. Because sometimes artists can have this belief that I should be, I should be making my work eight hours a day, three days a week, or I should be in the studio four hours after work. I should be doing all these things. And because I'm not, I'm going to do nothing because I've failed. Right, we do that so often. If I can't do it perfectly, or if I can't do it to the level I think I could or should, then I have already failed and I will do nothing. And that is a loop that feeds itself. So the first thing we gotta do is just break through that with something as simple as the Pomodoro technique that a lot of people love, which is like a 20 minute timer, doing something for 20 minutes that we're afraid of or have been dreading, which is like, feels like nothing. And then at the end of 20, 15, 20 minutes, you decide, do I want to keep going for another 15, 20 minutes? Which in fact was a highly effective way for me to finish this book on the days when I was like, I cannot, I don't know what I'm doing. I was like, okay, I'll just do 15 minutes and see what happens. And sometimes I stopped after 15 minutes and some days I wrote for a couple hours. But so I get people to ease in through something that feels low stakes and some, and in short quantities of time, sort of just like exposing themselves and in increasing their engagement with other artists, like taking in work of whatever form they want to and of like being in conversation or hanging out with in some way, shape or form other artists and being with each other in that way. Like I know you as an artist, you know me as an artist and that's, that's the way that we're meeting in this time right now. And those are really simple, effective ways to get a person to sort of break through their fear of returning to a practice. And it's sort of like a gentle easing back in. And then before you know it, you've been doing your work again a little bit and, and then your, your project you've been avoiding feels more available. So you have to trick your brain a little bit. It's a lot of tricking your brain. <laughs> I love, I, my, my graduate degrees in counseling psychology. I love cognitive behavioral therapy. I use a lot of cognitive behavior, behavioral tools with my clients in my practice, which is definitely a lot about tricking your brain. Are there some other examples you might want to share? I don't want to give away everything in the book, but. Um. <laughs> um, let's see. Yeah, in the, <clears throat> I, I, I do a lot of, 
it takes an adult, sometimes the course of a lifetime to learn to notice their thoughts. But truly, as we begin to notice our thinking and notice and be able to articulate the individual thoughts and understand ourselves as distinct from, that we are not the same thing as our thinking, that the thinking is happening and in fact, it's always happening. That sounds simple or maybe very complex, but that is a transformative experience that you don't have once. Like we have that over and over and over again to realize not all my thinking matters, that a lot of my thoughts are just kind of like detritus and I don't have to believe it or act on it. And so I work really hard to help my artists, my artist clients just articulate what is your thinking? So I'll give people homework, for example, and the homework could be like, you know, three hours over the course of a week in any creative practice, talk to two artist friends, listen to music for two hours, very like concrete, discrete actions. And then I'll ask them to just notice what does it feel like and what do you think and try to take notes about that non-judgmentally, just collecting data. Because what we want to do is just notice what kind of thinking gets triggered when and what feeling goes with that thinking, which this is all cognitive behavioral therapy, which is essentially just looking at thinking looking at cognitions and looking at emotions and feelings, landscapes, and connecting those to behavior, whether it's creating a behavior or inhibiting a behavior, because behavior change leads to more behavior change. And that is what gets people more of what they want. So noticing your thoughts is like a very powerful tool. <laughs> yes, I, I totally hear that. I, I've been thinking a lot about, um, I had a mentor when I was just getting into publishing, whose question was for all of us as interns was, you have to think about this question every single day. Why do you like the things you like? Why do you dislike the things you dislike? Um, and it sounds very simple, but it actually does, I think, get towards that CBT kind of like noticing your own thought processes and deciding what is truly me and what is received information that I've internalized. Mm -hmm. Um, do mm -hmm. I really Absolutely. think this book is good or did someone just tell me it was good <laughs> and I believed them? Um, so I really like that. And I think it's a very simple thing that everybody can practice, whether or not you think of yourself as an artist. Um, and it does help you. Um, for me personally, it helps me kind of like sort out all of that dreck in my head for sure. Oh, sure. Well, we just have, we have narratives about who we are and what that means. And a lot of it is not self-derived. A lot of it is outside information from families and culture and school and the systems that we live in. And all of that can be up for um, poking around in. Like all of it, we get to hold up and say, does this resonate with me as an internal truth? Or do I think this was handed to me? And no judgment either way, but it's like, it's all up for grabs. It's all up for poking around and, and playing with and poking holes through. And so I like when I'm working with an artist to understand what is the story they have of themselves. Cause sometimes the story is outdated or it's no longer accurate or maybe it was never accurate. And I have an example in the book where I had this conversation with my father who I, I'm not so per, super close with. And he was saying something about me being a procrastinator. And it was so funny because no one in the world who knows me or has known me since I've been an adult would think I procrastinate. I'm like habitually early to everything. And I never miss deadlines. Like I ne am never late, but he probably was thinking of like, you know, me at 12, like not wanting to do my homework. And then that got fixed and stuck in his mind. But so, and that was an easy one for me to dismiss. Cause I'm like, no, that's not part of my narrative. I am in no way, shape or form a procrastinating person. Um, and so then that made me think, well, what else 
has, what else has been handed to me that I get to look at and discard if I want? Like, oh, actually that's not true. That doesn't resonate with who I think I am. Or wow, that really is true, but I don't like it. Do I want to do something about that? It's just, it's all fodder. And I like to do it in a really non-judgmentally way. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the publishing journey here. Um, so as I mentioned, you wrote this book in 2019, came out, or it's about to come out <laughs> in the middle of the pandemic, which maybe not the middle, maybe the end, maybe just the beginning. We don't know yet. <laughs> um, can you talk about uh, just kind of like where the book came from, what the process was like of creating it and how you hope it's received? Sure, sure. So this is always a controversial thing to say to writers who are listening. Um, I do not really identify as a writer. I have written two books. I write things, but it's mostly out of vocation and not out of need. Um, I, I write self-help books for artists because I want to be of service to as many artists as possible. And there's just limits to what I can do in my practice. So I can only see, you know, I can only have a roster of 60 to 70 clients at any given time. The, the different components of what I do are limited in their output and scope. But books can reach a ton of people. And I have this mission to help as many artists as possible make their work and have a better experience, better lived experience of being an artist. And so that's sort of like guiding where all books have come from, will come from if I read anymore. But this second book, this Make Your Art No Matter What, I had this idea after my first book came out that the first one, like I said, was very much in response to the political climate. And I wanted something that felt a little bit more a useful tool that you could pick up at any point in your life, no matter what was happening politically, that these were sort of more or less evergreen issues going on in an artist's life. And I just started jot jotting down like, well, what would those topics be? Of all the things artists have brought to me for the past decade in our sessions, what are like the big 10 or 15 items that come up over and over and over again? And I started making a list of them. And I started I, kind of having this idea for this book, but I knew I needed an advance for it. Like my first book, God bless, my first publisher, Feminist Press, for giving me the opportunity to put out that little book. And it was written super fast for like no money. And I never stopped working or slowed down working. But with a second book, I knew I wanted to write something that had a lot more time put into it and um, that it would take longer. But I knew also like, I'm gonna need an advance and I don't know how you get one of those. But I knew maybe I needed an agent and I did not have a literary agent. I know 6 million writers and it never occurred to me to be like, hey, could you introduce me to your agent? Could I talk to them? because I don't think of myself and didn't think of myself as a writer. But then one day I saw on Instagram and uh, an artist friend, Marley Grace, who writes books, she was posting some gratitude about her, her agent. And I just DM'd her and I was like, Marley, I really think I wanna to talk to an agent and I've never done that before. What was your experience? And she's a very, very generous forthcoming person with information and in her own experience. And so she was like, this was my agent. She was amazing. You should totally reach out. They would love your first book and, and they would love the kind of stuff that you do. And so I looked up this agency. I just looked them up on the internet and they had a, they had a solicitation guideline. Like if you want to write to us, if you're interested in us looking at your project, this is what you do. And there was two agents there and I just read about both of them and, and want the other one that was not Marley's agent actually seemed like she might be a better fit for me. And so I just followed their directions because I have many years of being a grant writer of training. So I'm very good at like reading directions and following them. And I sent her a proposal, like just a brief general overview of like, this is what I want to do with my next book. This is what my first book was about. Here's what I think this next one would be. 
And then she wrote to me within a couple of days and was like, let's talk. And so she and I put together, her name's Laura Lee Mattingly, and she's wonderful. I would not have written this book if I didn't have her. Um, she, she was like, all right, let's get a proposal together. And oh, by the way, I want it soon. And I was like, gulp. Because <laughs> also at that time I was writing like 250, 300 grants a year. And so I was always on grant deadlines. And I was like, how am I ever going to do this thing? But she gave me a deadline. And that's the key, listener, dear listener, you need a deadline. If you want to do anything, you just need a deadline, whether somebody else or a a real thing or a vicious a friend who's like, I'm going to throw freezing cold water at you if you don't finish the thing. <laughs> so my, my agent, Laura Lee was like, here's your deadline. Get me this thing done. And I just did it. <laughs> and then um, she helped me refine it. And I got to writing a book proposal is not fun. I'd say the only thing worse is writing an actual book, but the book proposal did make me think through like committing to a set of ideas that I, I didn't know if I would hundred percent stick to them. And I didn't but it made me commit to a set of ideas and think through what would this book be and how would it be organized? And then she got a couple of bids and I, and I went with Chronicle Books. Well, and here I am now. Yay. That's a beautiful story. I think because it also kind of mirrors the advice that you've already given. Which oh is yeah. Ask for help. I had to ask. I had to <laughs> ask. And guess what? I have this theory. It's called the French braid theory. Maybe it has a different name elsewhere where like, I have all of this wisdom and training that I can use on artists, all this counseling training, all this stuff, but it does not work on me. I cannot tell that to myself. Like I could French braid someone else's hair. I cannot French braid my own hair. That skill does not translate to me. I cannot turn that light on myself. And so um, I could read that section on asking 500 times. I can tell that to, a, to an artist. But that doesn't, it doesn't work on you. Like I don't absorb it by osmosis. I need someone else to actually reflect it back at me all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, people who can French braid your own hair, what is your secret? Please. Right, and can you French braid others as well? Can you do both? <laughs> Are you ambidextrous as a French braider? Ooh, yes. Yeah, maybe it only goes one way. <laughs> um, it was all asking and then all of the other, the, the writing the second book has really made me even more empathetic to artists and writers, like just the vulnerability of making a thing, a durational project, prioritizing your work and having to say no to other things and then putting it out into the world and subjecting yourself to the judgment of the planet and the internet, even worse. I have so much, even more of a deeper lived empathetic experience for all my clients now. Mm. Oh, this brings up a, a question I have. How do you say no to things so that you can prioritize your own art? It is so hard to say no. When I was writing the book, I knew I was on a deadline and there was something about the deadline that empowered me a bit more to say no. And I had to say no to so much stuff. I had to say no to different work things, to people visiting me, to like trips I wanted to go on. I had to say no. I had to free up more time than I thought I was going to need to because I needed so much more like bubble wrap psychic space around myself to get this book out. I had to, for example, swim a lot to figure out what I was going to say in a chapter. I had to go to the Rose Bowl Aquatic Center, swim a bunch of laps and be like, okay, I know what I'm doing with the chapter in isolation and then go home and start it. Mm -hmm. um, and now that, <laughs> and you know, the, actually the pandemic has taught me a lot about saying no and reframing it to what am I saying yes to? If it's not just, I'm not creating a vacuum. It's just like, I'm shifting toward more of what I want and need. 
And I struggle as a Gemini rising um, that I have a million interests and I, and as a Capricorn son, like I want to, I want to maximize and perfect and master everything in a lifetime. And I am not going to get to do in my lifetime, a fraction of what I want to do. I won't get, it doesn't matter how long I live there. There are more books, for example, like my, my biggest anxiety is like, I'm going to die before I get to read all the books I want to read. Cause there's not enough, there's not enough time in, in a lifetime for all the books. And that's like the central thing that makes me crazy is how am I going to get to read all these books? And I think from a lot of my clients, what I realized was their anxiety is often, how am I going to make all these projects that are inside of me? How am I actually going to get all of this out that's inside of me? And I think surrendering to the fact that that might not happen can provide a little bit of space to then start thinking about with today though, how do I prioritize? Like with this week, how do I live the priorities of what are, what are important to me? And again, it's not a drastic 180. People have many obligations that they wish they didn't have, but they do like sleep or your job or cooking food for someone who can't cook for themselves. There's things that we have to do because our body or society require them. Like we live in capitalism. We have to have money. We have to shower and take care of our bodies. We have to sleep. And so we may not get to do all of the things at the same time that we want, but we can start moving in small bits toward more of what we want. Because I find that what happens, particularly with artists, as they prioritize their practice more in small increments, then the necessity of other things starts to turn down and their willingness to say no starts to be increased because it feels so right and true to be in their practice more that other things feel less crucial or it's just easier to summon the, summon the no-ness that a person needs to say, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I think the pandemic has actually exposed that for a lot of people, I will say. I have had a lot of clients who are like, uh, it's, it's been revelatory, um, the degree to which they want to and need to say no to parts of their life that were um, unquestioning before the pandemic. And now they're like, oh, I, I don't want that anymore. I want more of this over here. Mm. Yeah, I, th I do think it has uh, clarified a lot um, for a lot of people just being kind of stuck in your house. <laughs> you have to really examine everything, everything that you're doing with your time. Um, this has been so great, Beth. I feel like I got to sit in on one of your consulting sessions. Um, thank you so much for sharing. Anytime, anytime. You know how to find me. <laughs> Pull me aside in the store and be like, this is what's going on in my practice right now. I absolutely will. And you're going to regret making that offer. Um is there anything else you want to talk about or um, any last kind of advice you want to leave our listeners with before we say our goodbyes? Um, buy the book, buy it from an independent bookstore. I recommend Skylight Books, um, but you probably have one in your town too. Um, share it with a friend. And I have, I have to pitch that I have a homework club, which is um, it's a club for artists who want to actually activate the things in the book in their life. And you get actual homework and a workshop and all this kind of stuff. So that's like the sales pitch thing. And then the, the like actual like life advice I want to give, the just thing I want to leave artists with is life's going to take you out of your practice all the time, all the time. You, every day, every week is a gentle invitation back to it. It's not going anywhere. It's always there and you can return to it anytime. You heard it here, guys. Don't stress. You got this. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Beth. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I wish we could do this in person, but I'm sure there are more books coming and we will get to party uh, in the store for the next one. I can't wait. Thank you so much. 
All right, everybody. Uh, my guest today was Beth Pickens. The book is Make Your Art No Matter What. It's available now at Skylight Books. You can order it at skylightbooks.com or stop by and see us in person. And keep on making your art no matter what. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye, everybody. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.